My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I don't want to alarm you, but one day soon, you or someone you love will wake up like this. <coughs> you know it's coming. And when it does, many of you will stagger into the bathroom, open the medicine cabinet and grab a cold remedy containing an extremely popular decongestant. And here's the thing you might not know about that decongestant. It doesn't work. Like, just doesn't. Same as a placebo, according to a detailed FDA review. This drug has been on the market for decades. It's been the most popular decongestant in North America since the early 2000s. But yeah, pretty much no good. Sorry. Now you may have questions, starting with, huh? And WTF? And gradually moving beyond that into the world of active ingredients over the counter versus prescription and how exactly we approved this drug, which, again, doesn't work. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Mina Tadras is a pharmacist as well as the host of the I'm Pharmacy podcast at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto, where he's also an assistant professor. Hello, Mina. Hello. I want to start by asking you, what is phenylephrine? Phenylephrine is a over-the-counter medication um, that is used as a decongestant. So generally what it does is it vasoconstricts, so it, it takes the vessels that are in the nose and it reduces their size so that less fluid is flowing into the nose. And when you're congested and feeling yucky, it helps that feeling go away. How widespread is it? I know people don't tend to think of these specific drugs that are in name brand pharmacy products. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this drug is, is, is very old. It was first developed in the 60s and it started making its way into pharmacies in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe. And how it's used is in a variety of different fashions, but most commonly what we're seeing it in is when you go to the pharmacy aisle and you go to find one of these cold and flu or cold or congestion medications, it's used in there in combination with other types of products. And that's often how we find it mixed in with acetaminophen, which is like commonly called Tylenol or ibuprofen, commonly used Advil. And we'll see it in a bunch of different products. Now, it also does come in by itself, uh, less commonly used, and also as a nasal spray in some situations. How did it become so prolific, for want of a better term? I took a look at all the products that we have in, in our little medicine cabinet, and it's in a bunch of them, and, and I gather like it's become one of the more prominent decongestant drugs on the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it just starts with what symptom is most common when people feel sick. Hmm. So if you think about it, when you get really sick, if you get a cold, any sort of viral or bacterial infection, there's very common symptoms. Right up there is fever. 
And then probably second to that is a runny nose and congestion. You know, some of the other things like the aches and pains, some of the cough, you know, you don't always get a cough when you're sick. And so what we find is that when the companies are thinking about what symptoms they want to advertise on the box, and so when you look at it and it says alleviates symptoms, it'll say congestion because that's a very common thing. And so the companies have put out a number of different products that help out with that. Now, we do have a decongestant that works really, really well called pseudoephedrine. And that's part of the problem in the U.S. was that pseudoephedrine is highly controlled because there was an act in 2006 that limited it because you can take high levels of pseudoephedrine and make methamphetamine. And so in the U.S., they started limiting how you can access and the amount of pseudoephedrine you can buy. And so in response, some pharmacies moved it behind the counter and they limited the products. That drug also is not supposed to be used in people who may not have controlled blood pressure, have diabetes, because it works so well, it's also a stimulant, people want to navigate away from it. So for those two reasons, we started seeing phenylephrine in more and more products as companies try to navigate through this restriction, but also the number of what we call contraindications, people who can't use certain drugs. And so, you know, when you combine that with how prevalent people get sick and how commonly they feel congestion, it just made sense that phenylephrine was in a lot of products. You just mentioned that pseudoephedrine, which is, I guess, the key drug in Sudafed, is highly controlled, which allowed phenylephrine to take so much of the market share. But you said pseudoephedrine works really well. How does phenylephrine work? So that was actually what the debate was recently at the FDA expert panel. So people have been flagging that phenylephrine may not work that well. And to be frank, like when I'm sick, I often joke with my wife that like, make sure you look on the side and don't get the stuff for the phenylephrine because that's not going to help you. (laughs) And so we've all known that it was inferior to pseudoephedrine in helping congestion go away. Now, pseudoephedrine also, you don't want to take it right before you go to sleep. So if you notice any of the PM products will never contain pseudoephedrine because it makes you not sleep. And so what what ended up happening is that the FDA said, okay, let's go reevaluate some of this old data and let's develop some new data. And then when they compared that to placebo, they found that phenylephrine in the oral form, so the tablets and combinations, generally didn't work any better than placebo. You're telling me that the major drug in almost every over-the-counter decongestion doesn't work. In the oral form, it looks like it may not be working. Now, I think it's important to note that when these drugs were first approved, And it still continues to be the North Star for regulators. So regulators are the people who decide if a drug is able to enter the market. The most important thing to them is, is it safe? And they reanalyze that and it continues to be very safe. But the question is, does it work? And I think that most of the data is pointing to it probably does not. You mentioned that this drug's been around for quite some time. How come we're just finding out about this now? That's a really, really great question. And to understand why this happens, you have to understand how drugs come to a market and not to like plug our podcast or anything, but this is sort of one of the things that we explore in some of our episodes. And what what ends up happening is like, when you think about a drug hitting the laboratories, they invent it, someone finds the, the molecule that works, then a company will decide if there's good evidence to finally take it to humans and they'll do clinical trials. Mm -hmm. This is all before they get market access. So to meet this regulatory standard, to make Health Canada and the FDA, the regulators, say, yes, you're allowed to enter the market, you have to study how well it works and how safe it is. And you do that through large clinical trials. Now, once you've done enough of those trials, you can submit it to the FDA or Health Canada, depending on which country you want to enter, and they'll review it and say, yeah, your drug is effective and safe. 
And then once that happens, most cases, unless they're looking for new populations, the clinical trials don't have to happen anymore. We continue to monitor how safe the drugs are. We do these real-world studies. We have safety monitoring. We become obsessed with safety once it hits. But we no longer kind of evaluate its efficacy or how well it works using a trial. Now, different people will ask questions about the real-world effectiveness, but that's a whole different thing. But that's not coming often from the companies. Now, this model that I described to you has substantially changed, and the rigor of it has changed dramatically over the last 25 to 30 years. Hmm. So this drug was before that period of time where you could you know, get away with small trials, you could submit it to prove that drugs are safe and effective. Now, there, there still was data, but you didn't have to kind of meet the same rigor that we do today. Also, because it was an over-the-counter and it was a much older drug, we see lots and lots of these old drugs that have been around since the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you name it. And so those drugs haven't been through the same kind of machinery that now exists for new drugs as they enter the market. I'm going to ask the obvious follow-up question, which is if this can happen with phenylephrine because of when the trials were done and when approval was given, uh, how many other drugs like this might be out there? You know, I don't think there's a lot. Okay. But I do think there's a chance that some of these older drugs may not work for everything we think they do. And, you know, for me, I still do agree that the North Star should always be like assessing the safety. And there's lots of people studying the safety of these products. So I'm not I'm not as concerned. There are a few drugs, like if you're going to ask me as a pharmacist, like, you know, there's some there's some products that are used as stool softeners and laxatives that I really do question if they work that well and if they work as well as we think they do. And so I don't think we're going to see as many that come down to the point where like, wow, this is in this form, it's probably the same as placebo. But I do think we'll see some that we're like, why are we even making people pay for this? I know that safety is obviously the chief concern here. But at some point, we really have to look into what kind of promises are we allowing uh, some of these companies to make? I completely agree with you. But I think, you know, not to open up a can of worms here, but there's lots of products that are on our market, especially those in the naturopathic, homeopathic, over-the-counters that we are A-OK with. And I actually ethically, as a pharmacist, have a problem with this. Hmm. So I will never suggest a product that I know does not work. So I will never in my life suggest homeopathy to a single patient. And you could quote me on that, and I don't care what angry emails I get, but it's for the very reason that you're citing. And so we already have a precedent where there's some products where we don't test them as rigorously, and we kind of allow them outside of that. And that's another part of this thing is that this product is an OTC. It's an over-the-counter. If it was a prescription drug, I guarantee you this would have been way more rigorous. Now, I, I also want to make the caveat here that the nasal spray form of this drug is not in question. I was just about to ask about that. Obviously, aside from how you take it, how does that make the drug more effective and how effective is it taken nasally? Yeah, so, so at a very high level, what happens when you take an oral medication is when you absorb it into your bloodstream from your stomach, it then often goes right past the liver. And we call this a first pass. You know, the liver is our kind of filter system for things coming through the blood before it gets spread to the rest of the body. And so what some of the data that the FDA was looking at showed is that once it goes past that first pass effect, your liver is doing too good of a job and it breaks it down. And so from there, it has to go through your blood and get up to your nose. And so by the time the liver gets done with it, there's not much left. And this is common with some a lot of different medications, and that's why we can't always use oral forms. Now, when it's used nasal spray, you're delivering it right to the cause of the problem. And so that's why sometimes when people have just congestion, we often suggest that they just use a nasal spray, regardless of which drug is in there. And so 
that formulation is always good when you're when if you're just congested. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. and We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. In terms of these cold medications in general, you know, I, I guess it's not valid to say that the whole thing is useless because it contains these other ingredients. What do you do when you have a cold or someone in your family has the first, uh, the first crappy daycare or school cold of the year, you know? Well, okay. So first of all, the, the, the crappy daycare, you know, for kids, most of these things are off the table, right? Yeah, like, of I course. just want to flag that. Like pseudoephedrine, you have to wait till 12, I believe. And so we often have the cutoffs of 12, 6, and 18, right? Those are kind of like the cutoffs. Hmm. You know, the first thing I suggest to people is always turn that box on its side and look at that like really tiny print label and go to the section that says active ingredients. Right. That's what you want to know is in there. So when a patient walks into the pharmacy or anyone in my family, I say, well, what are you feeling? Because remember, these products are not curing your cold. They're not getting rid of the virus. They're just trying to make your symptoms a bit more bearable. Mm -hmm. So often I'll ask, like, do you have a fever? If you have a fever, then you probably need something with Advil or Tylenol in it, right? So you need some acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, and ibuprofen or something else that helps reduce your fever. And those often also help with the pain and aches. Right. Then if they say they're congested, I often will ask like, if they have any other issues with their heart or blood pressure. And in most cases, even if their blood pressure is controlled, it should be okay. And then that's when we'll say, okay, then you should probably use some pseudoephedrine if you're super congested. Right. If they want to use it at night because they can't sleep, then we'll try to use something with an antihistamine in it to help them sleep. And then we ask if they have a cough and whatever and all, all the other symptoms. And based on that, you can navigate those ingredients because the side of those bottles can contain four or five different active ingredients that are all supposed to alleviate different parts of your system. In that case, when somebody says uh, they want something at night and they can't sleep, you say an antihistamine. Does that have different active ingredients in it uh, that help with congestion aside from the two we're discussing? They don't help quite as much with the decongestants as the decongestion does. Right. But antihistamines will often help alleviate some of the reaction but they also cause a little bit of drowsiness, which helps people sleep. I see. And then uh, beyond that, there's the nasal spray. Yeah, there's the nasal spray and you can use combinations. Now, obviously, you know, as a, as a pharmacist or as a regular human, I, I try to minimize the number of products, right? Like, so you, these combos are good because think about it. Like, you don't want to take when you're sick, suddenly having to take four or five different products. It's nice that they're combined. And then in some scenarios, I'll say, well, like, take this at night and then during the day, use this nasal spray. And those are kind of like, the combinations of things we try to navigate towards to try to help them with their symptoms. I really appreciate that because this is the start of the September daycare, yeah, school. Yeah, fun. it's the start of all the fun. <laughs> so I wanted to get that clinical advice out of the way. But going back to the big picture, how does something like this go on for so long? I know you, you mentioned the drug is old and, and the tests kind of just held up for a long time. But as I was reading about this before this interview, you know, it wasn't this FDA review that was like the first time a flag had been raised about this drug. You know, I kind of took a moment when this came out and thought, like, how did we get to here? And I, and I, and I think 
if you can imagine, there's all of these urgent matters and there's all of these drugs that we're concerned about safety and we're concerned about all of their issues. And there's also resources to go back and do these experiments. So doing clinical trials is not a cheap endeavor and it requires resources. So if you're thinking about a product that's part of many that alleviates symptoms that we know is generally safe and there's no question about it and it's over the counter and it's pretty cheap compared to like when we think about how much drugs cost in general. Right. You can imagine that all of those strikes I just said probably put this lower on the priority. We know it's not hurting anybody. It's in combination with other products. People are using this for two or three days just to feel better. We know there is a placebo effect to feeling better. And so I think there was sort of this idea like, what are we gaining? What's the value of information is often the question we ask ourselves in this field. How much do we want to invest to know this? So when you have a drug that's costing an insurance company or the government, maybe $15,000 or $10,000 a year, you're questioning its safety. You have, you know, 100,000 people who are going to use this every day for the rest of their lives. You're willing to invest a million dollars to figure out the answer to that and get more certainty around, well, does this work or not? For this drug, it was kind of a question of like, you know, do we really want to invest resources that could be placed in other places to do this? But I think at a certain point, there was probably enough questions and they saw the market switch from the mid 2000s to now where this product was so dominant in the market that it had to be answered. I think what we also have to remember is that these studies are happening all the time and they don't make the news. Mm. And so I think people flag this and say, ah, you know, this is a proof that the system and big pharma is out to get us. But I, I point to these examples and say, you can imagine there's people, there's, there's a machinery of people like myself, people at the FDA, people at Health Canada, who are constantly studying this stuff and not reaching these conclusions. And that's why you don't hear anything about it. And that's why this is news. Well, since you were the first to mention Big Pharma on this podcast, <laughs> I have to ask, uh, there's a lot of people making money off this drug for all those years that these reviews weren't being conducted if there were questions already asked about it. Like, people are profiting off that not happening, no? Yeah, they are. But like, I think in the big scheme of things, these products are generic. There's no huge brand company that controls this. Now, it is in some of the more common brands. And that's just the way that people shop. Like they go in and, uh, you know, they'll pick, still pick the Tylenol rather than picking the life brand. But there's just a lot of companies that could be making these drugs. So I wouldn't pinpoint this to like someone making a, a ludicrous amount of money. It is a big market. And I think they're responding to the market dynamics of what people are buying. This wasn't someone trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. There was no concerted effort. But, you know, one thing to remember is that the moment that drug goes generic, there is no incentive for a lot of things to be studied. And we depend on public funding and government funding to go back and study these things. And that's actually one of the reasons probably why it didn't get studied is because no one held the patent anymore. We should always buy the generic brands, right? When you're looking at a product like this that, you know, you're choosing between Tylenol, Advil, and then Life or whatever the, the pharmacy brand is. If you want to save a few bucks, yeah, absolutely. So the products are equivalent to each other. Yeah, I, I think for some of the things, there's like different capsules and different formulations and different flavors, especially with the kids stuff. And so back to that point. But I think generally, you know, there's there's a control over generic products that they have to be tested within a certain range of what the brand name is. These products are all so old that most of the things on the over-the-counter are not branded products in the same way that pharmaceutical drugs are. And so I, I would you know, you'd be surprised. They probably all come from the same factory in many ways. And so I think for listeners, I would just say like, if you want to save a few bucks and not feel guilty about it, I would definitely always buy the generic. I, I, I do. As somebody who had to be told that I don't like the taste of the grape Tylenol, I like the cherry Tylenol. I appreciate that. 
<laughs> Trust me, I got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so I hear all that stuff all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Last question. How do we fix this? Is there a change to like the way drugs are approved or uh, reviewed or regulations around them that would have, I guess, prevented it in the first place, but also that would cast a wider net and catch more of these widely available things that may not do what people think they do? I'd probably answer this with three answers. So the first is, like all things, we probably need more funding to study these drugs and safety in general. Like as a person who does this, we, we really don't have enough resources if you think about how massive the market is. And the funding that goes into independent researchers like myself and regulators is literally a drop in the bucket. And so it's a really unfair balance of how much and how many drugs are there. There's thousands and thousands of drugs and there's not enough of us to study and keep track of where this stuff we, you know, we've developed algorithms and flags to make sure we prioritize it, which is what I was hinting towards before, which is that we often think about the drugs that have the highest burden, that have a higher risk, and we study those more and more than we do other things. But, you know, if we want to have a full monitoring, that just requires resources. The second thing is this, another reason this fell through the cracks is that we don't really have great data anywhere in the world on over-the-counters and natural products, the same way that we study prescription drugs. Hmm. So someone like myself, we have big data on every prescription drug that's filled. And so we're able to link that with hospital and ED visits and how people visit the physician. And I can really do a really great job of getting insights into how well medications are working in the real world. When it comes to over-the-counters, I have nothing. And so I think one way we can improve our monitoring and especially the safety of these products is just improving our insights and data to which patients are getting them and if they're working or not. And so... You know, I, I think that that's one of the things that as we move into the future that we could probably do a bit better instead of having to go backwards and study these things, we can proactively study them if we have insights on who's using them, how they're using them, and if they're working for them. Mina, thank you so much for this. It's been really informative and I think a great primer slash preview to cough and cold and flu season. Awesome. Have a great day. Thank you. Mina Tadras of the University of Toronto, the host, if you want to learn more, of the I'm Pharmacy podcast. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca where you can find all of our previous episodes, including one where I'm trying to use this decongestant and it's probably not working. You can also talk to us. We're on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. We are at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca via email. And we got a phone number if you want to leave a voicemail. That phone number, 416-935-5935. A reminder to all of you that we are still looking for your questions and episode suggestions, especially around anything relating to financial challenges, navigating the current state of the economy. Inflation went up again this week, I'm sure you noticed, and all the other factors that can make affording anything fun feel impossible sometimes. You can get the big story wherever you get your podcasts. And when you do, please say some nice things about it if they let you. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well... It was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. 
I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.